O oh God, your word is more precious than fine gold and sweeter than the purest honey. As we turn to your scripture, send your Holy Spirit to infuse your word with truth and grace so that the good news of your love would shine before our eyes and delight our senses so that we cannot help but respond with wonder, faith, and trust. Amen. On this first Sunday in Advent proper, we will begin with a reading from the second letter to the Thessalonians, to Thessalonians, and we will read from, no, I beg your pardon. <laughs> you know, First Thessalonians is not a very long book, so my bookmark put me in the wrong spot. <laughs> so we're going to read from First Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 13, and we'll read through to chapter 5, verse 11. So, sorry. Let's begin with First Thessalonians. 4, 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven and cry a command with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you have, not need, have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers and sisters, for the day of surprise, the day, that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are the children of light, children of the day, and we are not of the night or the darkness. So let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep at night and those who get drunk and are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who cried, who died for us, that so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, that was a 
bit of a stumble through my scripture reading, but nevertheless, this is a powerful message. I would encourage you to read Paul's letters, uh, all of Paul's letters. They are vital to Christian discipleship. They define Christian discipleship. And so I commend that to you. But for now, let's talk about what he said in light of our ongoing theme of Adventus, the, the longing and the inevitable coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the longing for and the imminent return of Christ. First of all, one thing that I have observed routinely in my life is this increasing fascination in our society, especially in Western society, with apocalyptic vision of the world. These dystopian themes that are consistent throughout our culture. There have been more movies made in a post-apocalyptic world, or set in a post-apocalyptic world, in the last 25 or 30 years than I can ever recall, and I'm an old-time movie buff, so I can tell you that this is a theme that has become more common probably since World War II, but if you recall, World War II gave us, uh, at the close of World War II in the 1950s and the 60s, we saw a lot of movies about uh, the atomic age and all of the the potential that it brought and all the disaster that it could bring. This is why we got those crazy Japanese monster movies. This is why we got those great B movies that you go to the theater to watch back in the 50s where, you know, uh, spiders that were in the desert where they tested nuclear bombs grew to be giant and so forth, right? That, that was the first kind of round of apocalyptic vision of humanity's lack of control over forces that it was trying to embrace. And then we get into the 70s, the 80s, the era of science fiction, and from here on now we also have a whole culture, a genre of entertainment that comes in the form of video games. And the vast majority of the video games are set in a dystopian, post-apocalyptic world. We are all convinced, it seems, that the world is coming to an end and it's a matter of how you're going to survive it and what you're going to do in the era after society and the world as we know it has been completely obliterated. So clearly there's a great deal of fascination about these topics. And there is a interest and fascination in the Christian apocalyptic lore around something that is usually referred to as the rapture. The rapture is something that Christians have embraced in most regards with a kind of enthusiasm. And I'm speaking in general terms, but a lot of people are familiar with the term and a lot of non-Christians and a lot of marginal believers are familiar with the Christian uh, cult of the rapture. Now, I refer to it as a cult, not in a way of being disrespectful or condescending, but rather to put it in perspective. You may be surprised, for example, to find out that the word rapture doesn't appear in Scripture, that it's not there. In fact, it is an idea that is implicit in Scripture. And it is not so vague that it can't be seen for what it is, 
but it isn't so plain that we can label it the rapture. And so we're left with some ambiguity on the topic, and this has made many people uncomfortable throughout the ages, so they've worked very hard to create what I call the lore of the rapture. And again, I'm not here to criticize or anything like that, but to inform you with grace and love that these are things that we best focus on in an appropriate way in order that we can have greater peace with life and our readiness for Christ's return. So what is the rapture? Well, the word rapture translates back to something that would basically mean to steal away or to quickly withdraw. And so in that regard, it's an accurate description of what Paul just described in the passage that we read, that there would be a time when, in an instant, the dead would be raised, and then those who were alive but in decaying flesh would be transformed and all gathered to Jesus' side as he makes his triumphal return. So you could describe in a word what he has outlined as a rapture or a stealing away or quickly gathering. And so this is where we get the term. So it is not an inaccurate term and not a term that we shouldn't uh, use, but simply a, a term that's been so overused that it's turned into a kind of cult and lore of its own. And that's what I would like to encourage you to rethink today. One thing is for certain from what we read in Scripture. Christ is coming again, and when he comes, there will be a shout, a trumpet blast, and his people, his bride, will be gathered to his side, whether they live or sleep in the grave. Now, if you want to know more about these things in depth, then I would recommend that you visit my Wednesday night Bible studies that are online in the YouTube channel and on Facebook Live, uh, the archives in Facebook, I should say. As you go to our Facebook page, you can scroll down and you'll find, you could even find a uh, link in the uh, Facebook page for just videos. And you can scroll back and in lessons 12 through 15, I talk a lot about the second coming of Christ, and in particular, the gathering of the people as it is described in Scripture. The word that is best used and the least heard is a word called harpazo or harpazo. And this is a word that is der derived from Scripture that describes the gathering of the saints or the children of God through Christ at the time of Christ's return. And so we have then a conclusion that we've reached so far, which is that Christ is definitely coming again, that he is definitely going to gather all living and dead saints, or that is those who have been born again through Christ and become children of God through Christ and sharing in his inheritance will join him at the hour of his return when he, the bridegroom, returns with a shout and the trumpet blast. Remember we talked about the wedding last week and how the bridegroom comes, how the bridegroom will gather around him uh, a, a company of, of family and friends 
and they will go to where the bride is waiting and ready. And there will be at the nearest point at the most appropriate time, a trumpet blast and a shout from the bridegroom. And then he will greet his bride at her door and take her back to her, his father's house where he has prepared a place for them. This wedding lore of the Jewish tradition then, based in Old Covenant scriptures, is a foretelling of what we can expect on the day Christ comes. The day of the Lord, scripture calls it, which is a vague term in a sense because the day of the Lord really speaks of God's judgment and wrath. And this is not specifically what we anticipate when we anticipate Christ's return. But it is the beginning of the day of the Lord. It's the first thing that happens on the day of the Lord and the last thing that happens on the day of the Lord is the judgment and the uh, final passing of, of all things as they once were. Let's focus on the bridegroom's coming again. Paul said, I'm not going to write to you about these things because you already know that I can't tell you because I don't know. I like that he says that because it's amazing to me how many Christians who, uh, for whatever reason, have developed a sort of desire to put dates and names on things and to figure out exactly when this is going to happen or to see how close they can get to predicting it. And I'm fascinated by this, but I'm also a little bit troubled because there are Christian leaders, there are people who have been given a certain spiritual authority, there are certain people who have been given responsibility by their calling and by the people that have trusted them, who are using their senses and their sensibilities to try to name names and set dates. And Paul, truly the greatest apostle to us Gentiles, has said plainly, and remember he pointed this out in the passage, that he had gotten this from divine Source. In, in, in other words, if you, if you take what he's saying here in the context of what he says in Colossians and in Ephesians, what you realize is, is that he's gotten information directly from the throne room of God, much in the same way that John does when he writes the revelation of Jesus. And so when the Apostle Paul says, I have it on good authority that you can't ask me to tell you when these things are going to happen because nobody knows except for the Father. And if Paul's authority on that particular topic isn't enough for you, then you might want to remember that Jesus, the Son of God, told his closest friends in a private briefing on the Mount of Olives, nobody knows when these things will happen except for the Father. So we can study these things, we can learn from the, the vast knowledge that's being given to us out of love from the treasure trove of God's majestic genius. But we must not get caught up in setting dates and trying to identify certain characters. And worse, developing a human system of interpretation that 
somehow subverts scriptural accuracy and scriptural holiness. In other words, the perfection that is in the word of God, not in the printing press, not in the page, but in the word of God, the very expression of God's heart and mind, that perfection doesn't need to be supplemented. And yet there are men and women who have throughout the ages created supplementary theories and ideas that have become part of our popular culture. So we're back to that apocalyptic culture again. This idea that we're going to, you know, experience a seven-year tribulation period and that it's going to kick off with a covenant made with Israel that is eventually violated and with an abomination of desolation. Again, if you'll refer back to the Revelation Bible study that I lead on Wednesday nights, I have a great deal of teaching in there about that. But what I'd like you to understand is, is that, that the theory that has become the most popular, the lore, the legend that has become the most popular, is also the one that doesn't necessarily have any scriptural legitimacy. It is simply a belief that has been calculated and uh, asserted by certain Christian leaders, and it has become, well, I believe, part of the deception that is common to these times as we see the soon return of Christ. So please don't hear me criticizing other Christians because I despise it when pastors and people of the pulpit use this time to criticize other Christians. What I'm saying is, is that you can't be sure about anything except for what scripture tells you plainly. Everything else is theoretical and it can be spirit-led and a divinely inspired instruction, but take it with a grain of salt because the fact that the Lord himself and now the Apostle Paul have said to us it will happen in the blink of an eye. It will come like a thief in the night. You won't be able to see it coming. That should tell us that any attempts to create a means of seeing it coming in a human fashioning is a, an opportunity to be ignorant and an opportunity to be in the dark and asleep. Can you imagine if Christians had been taught that until they see a covenant between a certain world leader and Israel, they don't need to worry about a thing. Can you imagine if Christians had been taught that until they see a vast army and air force coming from the north to the south and attacking Israel only to be thwarted by divine intervention, if you are waiting to see that so that you know this is it, then you might be asleep at the wheel. And what Paul wants us to understand is, is that he's not even going to bother writing anything that might tempt you to go that direction. Rather, he's saying, just know this. There will be a trumpet blast and the shout of an archangel. And then in the blink of an eye, in the instant moment, the church will be gathered around the Lord and God's wrath will then be poured out on the world. Listen to these scripture passages that help us to understand how important it is to not be date setting and, and naming names and so forth, but to rather just be ready at any moment. 
For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in glory, as uh, in the glory of his Father, and then will repay each person according to what he has done. Matthew 16, 27. Jesus said, when he comes back, it will be in glory. There will be no mistaking it. Think about all the things that are happening in the world right now that you don't know about. Think about all the things that are happening across town right now that you don't know anything about. Think about all the things that are happening in the next county that you don't know anything about. And then try to imagine for a moment a singular event that the entire world will see and hear. An event that everyone on the planet will experience at the same moment. That is what Jesus says is happening when he returns. He says that for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Matthew 24, 27. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Luke 17, 24. In other words, Jesus says, when I come back, everybody's going to know it. There will be no mistaking it. So instead of looking for small signs and hoping that your interpretation of things is correct, rather make sure that you have entered into this saving relationship with Christ so that when he shouts, you know the sound of his voice. So that when the trumpet blasts, you hear him because Jesus said, my sheep know my voice and I will call them by name. I honestly believe that when Jesus comes and he shouts for his bride, I will hear my name. I will hear him call my name and you will hear him call your name because we are his bride. We have been in a covenant relationship with him that isn't complete yet, but will be when he claims us takes us to his father's house and consummates the relationship so that we become not just children and Christians, but actually in the same way united with Christ as Christ is united with the Father and the Spirit. This is what scripture tells us. And so we who are in the season of anticipating Christ's birth and thinking about all the things that were predicted and that came true with meticulous accuracy. As we celebrate that and recall again the birth of Jesus foretold with perfect accuracy in meticulous detail, so we should be ready to see all that will accompany Jesus' return fulfilled with perfect accuracy in meticulous detail. This is why we take the time to study these things. Once again, I commend the Revelation Bible study to you that is available in archive form on the YouTube channel and the Wednesday night uh, Bible study from the Facebook channel and uh, notes and so forth are available from way back. So we just, we just want you to be informed and prepared, but at the same time, not in a way that makes you have a false sense of security, but rather a true sense of identity as the one for whom Christ is coming again, whose name he will shout and 
who will be with him by his side, whether living or asleep in death. Let us pray. Almighty God, thank you for your truth and love, and thank you, Lord, for wisdom from on high. Now, bless us and, and enable us to take what you have given us, digest it, and use it for your glory. And whatever isn't legitimately from you, Lord, erase it from the memories of the people. It doesn't need to be there then. Lord, we pray that in our spirits, we might know for sure, each of us, that we are ready for your return. That we have entered into the covenant with you so that our lives are being transformed every moment of every day. So that we are becoming your bride. This we pray for your namesake and for your glory. Amen.